Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass Amherst student Maura Murray disappeared in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in one of the most perplexing mysteries of our time. For years, we have covered Maura's case and the tireless online community that surrounds it in great detail. We have since expanded our mission with this series, raising awareness and shining a light on the stories of other missing persons. We now sit on the board of directors of the nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing, which was founded by Bruce Maitland. Bruce's daughter, Brianna Maitland, went missing from Montgomery, Vermont on March 19th of 2004, just six weeks after and about 80 miles away from where Maura Murray vanished. Private Investigations for the Missing aims to assist with investigations for underserved families whose missing loved ones have been forgotten by the media or by law enforcement. Through our growing community, we hope to shed a light on these cold cases. Families and loved ones can reach out to us at investigationsforthemissing.org. This is Missing. Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing spectacular. How are you today? I am doing great. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited because we have on two of our friends again, Brett and Alice from the Prosecutors Podcast. I know. These guys have uh, really been punching their missing uh, card to get a free episode or something. They're on all the time. That was a terrible analogy. Uh, <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. They have a club member card, and, and we're, we're punching holes in it. Um, and they joined us uh, on our Get Vocal uh, True Crime Thursday that we do every Thursday, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, on GetVocal.com. And we spoke about... One of the more frightening disappearances I think um, 
I've heard because it's just so tragic and odd and and out of the blue, seemingly out of the blue. And it's uh, Asia Degree. That's right. Asia Degree went missing on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2000, from Shelby, North Carolina. She was nine years old at the time she went missing. Four, six, four feet, six inches, and weighed about 60 pounds. And this is what makes it so frightening is she, in the middle of the night, in a, in a heavy rainstorm, she got out of bed walked out the door, spotted by a couple of people, some some people who were driving, and she was gone. And and that is tragic and terrifying to me. And I can't imagine being a family member and waking up the next morning and not knowing where she is and then hearing the details of her just leaving, just opening up that door into heavy wind, heavy rain, and just going out. Like, what possessed her to do that? Asia was possibly wearing a white shirt, white jeans, and white sneakers. She is an African-American female, black hair, brown eyes. And if you have any information, please contact the Cleveland County Sheriff's Office at 704-484-4822. And the prosecutors covered Asia's case on their podcast in a little bit more detail than we cover in this episode. This is just one. They did two episodes. And this was recorded live, as you mentioned, Lance. So make sure to join us on Get Vocal on Thursday nights, every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And check out the Prosecutor's Podcast, but mostly share this. Please share this. There is a photo that we discussed in the episode, and uh, we'll make sure to cut this clip for social media. But please share that. That girl in the photo, she's identifiable, Lance. And uh, I think that is one of the major points why Brett and Alice wanted to come on and come on our show and talk about Aisha's case. Right. And all too often and not through any fault of their own, we would ask questions and they would just shake their heads and maybe, you know, throw up their hands a little bit and say, I just don't know. Like, I don't know the detail. And that photo is one of those big head shakes. Like, what is this? Why is this? And like you said, share this. There's not a lot of detail on this, on this poor girl's disappearance. Share this. Let's, let's make some, details happen let's let's have some people talk about this uh it's um one of the more uh, i guess frustrating ones that we've ever experienced um and we hope you enjoyed the episode with brett and alice we do get a little lighter here and there throughout the episode because it's kind of hard to not have uh lighter moments when talking to them because they're just two really great fun people but again yeah take this one and and try to get the word out there the best the best you can Okay, everybody, thanks a lot. We really appreciate you listening. Check out the Prosecutors Podcast. Make sure to follow us on social media at Missing CSM. CSM stands for Crawl Space Media. Thanks a lot, everybody. And make sure you check out all of our fine shows at missingcsm.com. Welcome, our guests, Brett and Alice. How are you two tonight? Hey, guys. Doing great. How are y'all? What's going on, Alice? How are you? Oh, you know, I miss you guys when we don't see you. Miss you, too. 
every time you're on, we have a great conversation. We always talk about really interesting uh, missing person cases or, um, you know, true crime. Uh, and, and we always uh, have a fun time doing so without getting like uh, too crazy. You know, we, we have some laughs. We get serious like we get it. And uh, and we appreciate that. So welcome back. Yeah, and I just want to thank you guys for having us on to talk about Aisha's case. Last time we were on with you, we were talking about Maura Murray, and we we're talking about how there's so many cases out there, and how do we how do we get attention to those cases? And this is exactly it, what you guys are doing with missing. Um, this is a case that deserves a lot of attention. I'm glad the folks from Uncovered are here. They have a whole page on Aisha's case that you guys should all check out. Um, but we're really excited to talk about this case with you. So let's talk about the disappearance of Asia Degree. And uh, so she was nine years old when she went missing. And uh, this is February 14th, 2000. Yeah, the morning of February 14th. Yeah, I'll give a quick little timeline for maybe those of you who don't know about Asia. So she is a nine-year-old girl, um, pretty typical day leading up to it. She has a pretty typical childhood. She has an older brother, O'Brien, whom she shares a bedroom with, and she lives with her mom and dad and older brother. Um, she has, you know, it starts, we kind of go into the timeline in our podcast, but she has a basketball game on a Saturday. Very typical. She loves basketball, is a very good basketball player. Her team loses. Typical upsetness that may accompany that, being a nine-year-old losing your basketball game. Um, And her brother has a basketball game the same day. She goes home. um, Pretty normal day. The next day, Sunday, is February 13th. They go to church. um, And I should mention the night before uh, on Saturday, she sleeps over at her cousin's house. Um, They they are close, uh, close family, and also close in proximity. The next day, they go to church as a family, and they pretty much have a lazy day at home watching TV. Um, around dinner time, there's a big storm that rolls through town. Um, it's so bad that actually, I think a car loses control in the storm and hits um, an electrical box shutting down the electricity on her street. So they don't have power for a little bit of time. Um, but again, pretty normal day. Uh, eventually, Asia and her brother O'Brien go to sleep in their room. And um, a few events lead up to this, and we can get more into the specifics of the timeline. But basically, her dad comes home late from his shift. He works until 11 p.m., leaves at one point around 11.30 to go pick up some Valentine's candy for the next day, comes back home, watches TV, When he goes to bed around 2.30 in the morning, checks on the kids. They are both in bed. And then at some time after 2.30, Asia wakes up, changes her clothes out of pajamas, leaves the house, locks the door behind her, and starts walking down um, a two-lane highway, is spotted by two truckers. And um, when one of those truckers turns around to try and see if she needs help, she uh, flees into the woods and is never seen again. And to this day, um, you know, 20... 21 years later, she's never been seen again or found. A little while after that, there's a, a search. All that's left, really, is a shed about a mile south of her house contains some items that we can talk about that are linked to Asia. And then how long after, Brett? Years? No, I think it was in August of that year. Yeah, August 2nd, 2000. Well, no, August 2nd, 2001. Okay, so a- about a year and a half later... Um, 26 miles north of her house, a man who is paving um, 
his driveway, digs up a trash bag, has the audacity to open it. I think I'd be too scared. Opens it, finds another trash bag, opens it, finds Aisha's backpack with items in it. And that's the last development, um, major development in the case until a little bit more recently. Um, police say that they are looking for a green car that they think Asia got into that night. But you can see how limited this is. Essentially, a girl leaves her house in the middle of the night into a storm and disappears. Yeah, and I think just even hearing those bare those bare bone details, you can see why this is such an insane case. Alice mentioned this girl, she seems to have a very normal family life. There's no obvious issues. And in the middle of the night, on the morning of Valentine's Day, which is also her parents' anniversary, she gets up and leaves in a storm in some 30-degree weather. Um, it's a little warmer than that. 40, you know, low 40s. Um, raining, windy, and goes walking into the night down this rural two-lane highway and is never seen again. So... It is one of the most bizarre cases that I can think of. We don't know why she went, and we don't know what happened to her. One piece of evidence that I think is really important, and if nothing else comes from this conversation, I hope people will take a look at this. There is a photograph that was found in that shed. Alice mentioned the shed, and that photograph is of a of a young girl. Aisha Degree is African-American. The girl in the photograph is African-American. They look like they're about the same age. The photo appears to be a school photo. No one in her family, no one in the, the community, no one at the school recognizes this girl. And as far as we know, to this day, she has never been identified. That could be a red herring. Might not mean anything, but it seems like it's really important. And that girl is somebody's daughter. It's somebody. Uh, we know that. I mean, this is 2000. This isn't a computer-generated image or anything. Somebody knows who that girl is, and I hope people will take a look at it. If we could identify that girl, we might take a huge step towards figuring out what happened to Asia. All right. Geez. Um, a lot to uh, dig into here. Uh, before we get too deep into the details, I'm really curious what drew you to uh, Asia's story. Um Obviously, it's very tragic, and she's very, very young. Uh, where did you first hear about it? When did you first hear about it? I honestly don't remember the first time I heard about it. I think I had seen, I mentioned this on the podcast, I had seen or heard something generally about it on maybe like a Reddit thread or some post about the strangest case you've ever heard. And one reason we wanted to do this case is, and I don't know why this is, this case is not as famous as it should be. I mean, just given the facts, it should be really famous, but it's not. And even when we were looking into research for this, I mean, one th we always, when we do a case, we, if there's a documentary, watch a documentary. If there's a, you know, discovery ID or whatever episode on it, we watch the episode. And there's just, there's just none of that. There's so little out there. And, and because of that, because it's both a really interesting case and it's a case more people want to hear about, it's just one that we really wanted to do. And, and that's why we wanted to do it, even though, frankly, there's just there's so little information to go on. Right. I mean, I think at first glance, it may seem like a lot of missing person cases. Girl leaves, girl's never seen again. But the facts surrounding it are so 
bizarre. We say this in the the episodes, but when I first saw that she was nine years old, that made alarm bells go off in my head because nine years old is not a typical age for children to run away. So there were no indications from what we could see that she had anything to run away from, that she, that she was angry, that she had an abusive home. Nothing like that came out before or after the fact. Um, you'll see kids run away when they're much younger, and it's a it's a fake run away. They think they're running away, but really, you know, they're they're five or six. And they walk to the end of their driveway and they're like, I'll never eat broccoli. I hate this. I'm running away. There's that kind of running away. And then there's the teenage attempt to run away where you sneak out, you know, from your window and you you're in the depths of your rebellious stage and you run away. Those are kind of the two um, people who study runaways. Those are kind of the two categories of people run away. And Asia falls right in the middle when you do not see many runaways and you know, what really struck me when I heard her story for the first time were the conditions of the night. It was such a bad and stormy night that a car basically ran off the road and hit, um, you know, hit the utility pole so that the electricity went out for the whole street. That's bad weather. And if you're going to run away, you can control your situation in when you run away. You'll pick a better night to run away in. You'll pick when it's clear, when it's warmer, um, but you can't pick when you leave if you have a reason to leave that time if you're meeting someone and so it really struck me and a lot of people I see are asking questions um, in the chat you know was she being groomed was she talking to anybody was she chatting online all great questions and at first glance you think surely she was groomed surely she was chatting with someone on AOL um, instant messenger or something but they didn't have a computer in their home this is 2000. Um, you know, there are computers at school, but typically it's not where you everyone has an, a laptop or an iPad. Computers are typically in a computer lab. Um, I remember using computers in 2000. There was like a clunky computer in a big room and all teachers and everyone was looking over your shoulder as you learned to type, right? It was not a situation where everyone had a personal device where they could communicate with someone. But this picture, I do think it came to her, and I think it was her photo in that shed were also other things linked to Asia, like um, candy wrappers from her basketball game. Really seems like that's Asia's. How how the heck does a nine-year-old girl get a physical picture without anyone knowing, without her parents knowing, and without anyone in her school knowing? It is it's just bizarre beyond bizarre. Was there anything weird that happened at that basketball game? I mean, other than the fact that so they lost, it was their first loss of the season. Asia was the best player on the team. She fouled out with, I think, three minutes left, and they lost by one point. So there are some people who think that was so traumatic that it caused her to run away. But she didn't run away that night. She actually, she, her brother had a basketball game, and by the end of that, she was playing with the other kids. She was having a sleepover with her cousin. There's no indication that she was just so distraught there that people were worried about her. And it just doesn't seem like there's a good connection between what happened at the basketball game and her leaving. Did she have any um, previous uh, sleepwalking tendencies, maybe? Great question. So um, it, there's been no, at least nothing out in the public that she's ever slept walk before or that she's tried to run away before. And, you know, we talk a little bit about the sleepwalking. That's also a really popular theory and I'm forgetting the name of the movie I've talked about him before to you Brett but Mike Birbiglia is a comedian and he has a movie called I think it's called Sleepwalk With Me where it's a 
comedy, but it's actually about his very real life sleeping disorder where he has, yeah, it's a great movie and it's, you know, it's, it's very heartfelt, but also hilarious, but he deals with this very serious sleepwalking disorder where, um, he once jumped through the window of La Quinta Inn, you know, from like, I think the second or third story, certainly not the first story, ran through the window, um, and fell onto the lawn, um, while he was on tour. Um, because he was asleep and to this day he has to like wear um, oven mitts on his hands and he gets like tied into a straight jacket and then zipped into he puts a, a an entire bed sheet over himself and like has a hole for his head this is not a he tells it like a joke but it's all real and his wife has to zip him into this every night because he has such severe sleepwalking what he has is incredibly rare and he even talks about how he's like one in millions who has such a severe disorder that type that level of sleepwalking is so incredibly rare and you do things like crash through a window Asia in this case she got up quietly she had laid out clothes previously because she didn't turn on lights when she changed into her all-white outfit her brother heard her bed creak she heard her get up. he heard her get up and then a few minutes later heard her bed creak we think the creaking of the bed was her getting dressed Then she walks out probably the front door and locks it behind her. Sleepwalkers don't typically do that. Um, They they do things like crash through a window and fall onto the lawn and are woken up by paramedics. She did none of those things. She walked into the rain for more than an hour because she spotted about an hour apart. And when she realizes someone is turning around to, to try and help her, she runs so she has enough awareness to run. None of these actually um, fit into the mold of sleepwalking. So, of course, is she maybe a, an extreme case? Maybe. But then again, she probably would have been found at some point, and she's never been found. And then at the end of all that, if you think all that happened and that was sleepwalking, she had the incredible, um, horrible luck to, at 4.30 in the morning— run into a a murderer because she was abducted and and most likely killed. She didn't bury her backpack 26 miles from where she disappeared in in double layers of garbage bags. So, number one, even if she did sleepwalk, somebody somebody is responsible for this. Um, The sleepwalking would only explain why she left, and I think the chances of both those things happening together are astronomical. Good God. Now, the FBI seemed to have evidence that Asia had planned this for at least a a period of time. The FBI believes that she had planned it for at least a few days, that she had packed her bag beforehand. I don't we don't know why they think that they've never explained that. It's definitely true that she took extra outfits with her um, when her backpack was found. As Megan's pointing out, there were there was a new kids on the block. It was like a, it wasn't, we called it a shirt in the podcast, but everybody's corrected us that it was actually like a sleeping gown from the um, Hanging Tough tour, I think in like 1990, that was in her bag. Now remember, this is 2000. Aisha Degree was not listening to the new kids on the block in 2000. It's not her shirt. That shirt was found in her backpack when it was, when it was uncovered in that, that vacant lot. So we don't know where that, that came from. Um, weird, weird things like that are going on here. One, one theory that somebody threw out after we did the podcast that I actually thought was really interesting. I haven't talked about this with Alice yet is that she essentially was groomed by somebody at church 
and they had set it up as like a photo shoot. Like, meet me early in the morning. We'll do a photo shoot for your parents' anniversary. Because remember, it's the parents' anniversary. Bring some clothes. And so that's why she would have had changes of clothes, is to do like different photos. And the photograph of the girl is just, here's an example of photography I've done in the past, that kind of thing. Who knows if that's true, but it is an interesting thought. Yeah, and I'll just throw this out there, um, what my theory was. Um, and I, the more I've thought about it, the more I think... This is my theory <laughs> for those of you who may not have heard it. I thought, I think the picture has a lot to do with it. I don't know what, but what would make a responsible girl? And I say she's responsible because the reason she had a key to her house is that her parents, um, they worked shifts um, in the instance where she and her brother would get home from school and no one would be home. So they would let themselves in. Now, her brother is a year older than her. So if she had a key, it meant that her brother probably also had a key. So she wasn't just a younger sister being taken care of by her brother. She was responsible enough as a nine-year-old to have a key to the house, to let herself in, and she knew to lock the door. She was responsible enough to know that. And this was something that went on, you know, very frequently. Um, she took care of herself a lot. And that's not uncommon. I, I remember doing that when I was young. Her parents were doing the best they could, I think. Now, I think she would know that if she left in the middle of the night, and wasn't found in the morning, that would worry her parents. I don't think she meant to worry her parents. I think potentially she wanted to be back before they found out that she was gone. What would make her leave at 3.30, 4.30 in the morning? What could possibly be going on? Why do you have to take pictures at that time of night? I think that whoever groomed, I do think she was groomed. I think someone told her this, showed her the picture and said something along the lines of, I'm your twin sister. Your parents didn't want to tell you because they could only keep one of us, and they kept you. Don't feel bad about it. It's not your fault. But I'm ready to come home, or they don't know that I'm gone, or whatever it is, or I'm your long-lost sister. And something along the lines of either her feeling guilty that she was the one who was kept and the, uh, the sister was given up, or that her parents had lost this other daughter, and she was going to bring this daughter home for to reunite her family. It was going to be this joyous event. They were passing through town and this was the only time they could meet up and she was going to be able to show up at the front door at 6.30 when her parents woke up with her sister, with their daughter, whom they haven't seen in nine years and it will be the most joyous occasion. You know, happy anniversary, happy Valentine's Day, what have you. I I, I don't, I mean, that I, have, I don't know that to be the case, but we've mentioned this. The picture looks so much like Aisha. They're about the same age. Um, they have similar smiles. You could see them next to each other potentially being sisters. Um, so I wonder if there was some elaborate story like that to tug at her own heartstrings to make her do something that I don't think in her normal character she would have done, which is to leave the house in the middle of the night. You really nailed something there. I mean, it had to have been something to that extent, and it had to have been something that had been planted a while ago for her to... You know, it, it couldn't have been something that was brought up that morning and she was like, oh, this is, you know, this is uh, this is something that needs to be done tonight. You know, this was a plan, it feels like, uh, you know, based on your theory. And a lot of people in the chat agree. Michelle, a thousand percent agrees with you. Um, and Shannon likes your theory. Like a trick involving the photograph. Well, here, here's another reason I think it may have to do with that. If she was running away or if she was leaving for a short time, whatever, she packed a bag. There were things in the bag that she wanted to take with her. A couple changes of clothes and some candy. I think that's pretty normal for a kid. She had a marker with her, you know, probably some other typical things, a, maybe a book. 
Why choose a photo of a stranger to take with you? That makes no sense. It doesn't feed you when you're hungry. It doesn't clothe you when you're wet. You have lots of friends and you have lots of family. Why not pictures of your other friends and family? Why this one picture of a stranger to everybody else? That's why I think that theory fits because why? And if she cared enough, I think she went to that shed to get some shelter from the rain. Maybe she ran from that trucker. She came upon the shed and was like, you know, it's pretty cold. Maybe I'm going to sit down and eat some of my candies while I wait for my sister to show up. And she pulls out the picture to look at it. And that's why... It's there. And then I think she was met with ill will there because I think that picture was important and she would have taken it with her. She wouldn't have left it in the shed. Okay, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Why, why did she leave it in the shed? And was there evidence of anyone else being in that shed? I don't think so. So this shed belongs to a neighbor. Um, I think it's like a, a storage shed. They didn't live in it. And they have dogs. Um, they say that their dogs always bark when anyone approaches the shed or that area they said the neighbor said that night um the dogs did not alert they did not bark i'm not sure how much to put on that because we know very likely asia was in that shed so likely she did approach and the dogs did not bark it was also storming like crazy the dogs may not have heard her now if a car pulled up cars are louder and they have an engine and they have lights a dog may hear that over the storm, but they still didn't bark. So I, I don't know what to make of that, except that sometimes dogs don't bark, especially in a big, big storm. And one thing about this case and that I think would be nice for, well, there's a couple things that would be nice if the, if the authorities would clarify. Number one, the photograph that we have is actually very blurry. We posted a photograph that's been enhanced we assume that's a good enhancement. It looks like the original photo. I think it's helpful to have. But it'd be nice if the, if the authorities just released a high-quality um, image of this photo. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing about that photo, I, I truly believe, and we've talked about this photo a lot for a reason. We all, You guys talk about a lot of cases where there's evidence and we can sort of sort through the evidence, but it often feels like, man, I just wish there was something we could do in this case, this photograph, we can identify who that person is. If enough people listen to this and post that photograph on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else, there's a chance that somebody's going to see it and realize, Hey, that's me. And, and then identify it and we'll be able, and that would be just a huge break. This is a place where this community, the true crime community, web sleuths, everybody can really add value to a case. And I hope people will, will take that opportunity. I want to ask about the, the, the theory that you have, Alice, um, and how it would have taken a bit of planning on both parts, the person who was grooming or persons who was grooming and 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 uh, um, Asia. Who would she have been in contact with other than her family that would have been able to do that? And I think Susan in the chat had said, uh, you know, basketball coach or refs, um, people at church. Like, were there were there anybody involved in this that seemed to be acting peculiar or had had some sort of some sort of uh I, I guess past uh discretions or anything you know that's why this case is so mind-boggling from what we know no you know the the most um obvious suspects are the parents and family members and they were cleared pretty early on you know obviously investigators can be wrong but you would think 
that someone would have come forward after the fact, after this girl disappears into the night and is not found and repeatedly is not found. Weeks, months later pass. You would think a neighbor or a parent of a fellow basketball teammate would have come forward and been like, you know, hindsight 2020, but yeah, there was that weird assistant coach who kept hanging around around her and they, they kept talking and she, he always took her to the bathroom. You know, when she needed to go to the bathroom, that same coach always took her. I thought it was weird, but nothing like that has come forward as far as we know. And this is why it's so confusing because the easiest way to contact someone discreetly, you would think, is electronically. And we've already covered that, how this is 2000 and, and may, maybe that was the case. But at some point, even if they had electronic communications, there had to be a physical handoff of a photo. Maybe it was by mail. Maybe it was by another person, but physically she received something from someone else. Um, because again, this, this photo did not come from anywhere in her school and it doesn't, no one in her school can identify this person. So I don't know when she would have been given that, you know, it's possible it was mailed to her at home. That's risky. That's really risky. I don't know about you guys with younger children at home, but, um, a nine-year-old getting, Handwritten personalized mail is probably not that common. Um, and you risk, as the sender, that a parent opens it up before she gets to it. Now, she did have a key. She did get home before her parents. Maybe that person knew and just banked on it. But that's still pretty risky to do. So I, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, I don't know. Um, and that's partly why I think this case is so gripping. Do you have any theory on why someone who would be grooming her and presenting this uh, elaborate scenario that she had a long lost sister, why would they have her walk so far away and risk um, her getting lost, getting picked up by somebody else, the police find like happening upon a, a young girl walking on the street? Why wouldn't they create the why wouldn't they come up with a plan that, um, you know, leave your house. We're going to be in this the, the running car down the street where it's warm. Great question. <laughs> Why not? Why not say meet you after school? Parents aren't home, right? Right. I, I, yeah, that's a great question. One one thought I had was the shed, as I mentioned, is a mile south of her house. To send her, and that's the direction of her school, by the way. Um, typically, this is not a this is not a sidewalk. This is not a road people walk on. This is like a two. Sorry, she's walking in the direction of her school. She's walking in the direction of okay. her school. Um, one thought I had is that she is sent to walk towards her school. That's a direction she knows, thinking that if someone spots her, they're going to say, we saw a girl walking south, south of her home. She leaves some rappers behind. Um, investigators found that they can peg her one mile south of her home. Ultimately, remember, that backpack was found 26 miles north of her home in the opposite direction that she was walking. My one thought is she was sent that direction so that if anyone spotted her, they'd be looking in the wrong direction. All along, they knew that they were going to pick her up and take her in the other direction. But that's, you're right. That, that leaves so much up for for risk. Yeah, unless it's one of those things where they just, they know if they pick her up near her home, somebody may see, they're more likely to see. And so they send her walking. I, you know, maybe she was supposed to meet them earlier and because of the storm and because of her dad and he was awake. She didn't leave till later, and maybe they had a backup location, like meet us outside your home at midnight. If something happens, meet us at the shed. It's really, I mean, it's hard to say. 
exactly what's what's going on there. Um, I mean, it's it's really an inexplicable mystery in so many ways. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. It's totally inexplicable. I don't want to say how old I am now, but I would, if someone had a plan for me, I'm 72. Um, if someone had a plan for me to leave at 3.30 or 3 in the morning and walk to a location uh, to meet them, uh, in, in and I woke up and there was a storm and it's dark, I'd be like, I'm I'm a little nervous to do this. Um, I, I don't have kids, but I would imagine a nine-year-old girl would would open the door and say, this is terrifying. Why? Why? What is so? That's why I'm leaning. Like, I think your theory is so is is almost kind of spot on because there had to be something that important or she had some sort of like psychotic break. Important and secretive, too. Yeah. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. And, and you just hit on something really important. Michelle said the storm could have put a wrench in the plan. I think that is very possible because, remember, she leaves sometime after 2.30. It's really hard to stay awake for anybody in a dark room at an hour that you're supposed to be asleep. I don't know about you guys. If you've tried to stay awake at night and say, okay, stay awake till 2.30, I will probably fall asleep. If you're 9, you'll probably fall asleep. A few people have asked us, did she have an alarm? I don't think so. O'Brien never said that he heard an alarm and... That, again, would be risky to set an alarm that could wake up your brother, your parents. So what that leads me to believe is that she stayed awake. She never went to bed. I think she got in bed and stayed awake. And how can you stay awake, though, is if you were supposed to leave at an earlier hour. Ah, Looking at your watch, I was supposed to leave at 10, but dad's not home yet. I was going to leave at 11, but dad just left to go get Valentine's candy. Okay, he's back now, but he's watching TV now. It's midnight. Oh my gosh, I was supposed to be there two hours ago. Okay, he's going to bed. Pretend to be asleep. It's 2.30. Okay, I think he's going to bed now. Now I'm going to leave. You can see how maybe the storm played into it, how maybe she was supposed to leave earlier, and that's why there's the weird walking when maybe there wasn't supposed to be any walking in the rain. Ashley in the chat room says, wasn't Asia known to be afraid of storms too? People always say that. Um, I'm not sure where that comes from. It may be true. But I don't I don't know exactly where it comes from that she's afraid of storms other than she's nine years old. I mean, I'm afraid of storms. Right. So I'm sure she is afraid of storms. And like Lance said, I, none of us would do this. Right. N- no, nobody. You open your door and you're like, eh, eh, you know, I'll just I'll give him a call and I'll meet him tomorrow. Right. Um, now, she is a child. So you can imagine obviously somebody getting her much more excited about this or much more committed to this than, than an adult would. Um, you know, I do think Alice mentioned the parents earlier. I, we don't think the parents are involved. The authorities don't seem to think the parents are involved. If there was something, if it was a really terrible household and something happened that night, that could have, could have triggered this, but there's just absolutely no evidence of that whatsoever. And it's hard to imagine that anything could be going on in that home without her brother, O'Brien, knowing about it. They shared a room. O'Brien was a year older than her. Even if he was keeping the secret at the time, he has been very, he's been out there about his sister and how much he misses her and how tragic this is. I just don't think he would keep that family secret this long. So to me, it has to be an outsider. She had to be groomed. The how is 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 hard to imagine. Any any other missing young girls during that time period 
other than the photograph? I mean, that's hard to say. I'm sure there are some other missing young girls. I don't know in that area. It's interesting. Usually perpetrators go after the same type of person. So the girl in the photograph is African-American. Aisha is African-American. It would be interesting to know if there are other missing girls around that time, around that age, in that area. We did talk about a couple possible suspects, but it's really just the, you know, round up the pedophiles type suspects. I mean, there, there are people in that area who might be interested in Asia, but as Alice pointed out in the podcast, it's hard to imagine those people were cruising the rural roads of Shelby, North Carolina at 4.30 in the morning in a storm looking for victims. Michelle has a good point here. Does anyone do background checks on school photographers? So was the um, the picture of the other young girl, Is that does that feel like a school or like a... Yeah, like a school picture to you? It looks like a school picture, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think absolutely. It has that backdrop. There's like kind of the pose. Um, it looks exactly like a, a school photo. Yeah, definitely a posed one. I would bet a lot of money it is. Is it your theory that it was somebody who took that picture or it was somebody who found that picture and gave it to her? I mean, I would think it would not. it's not the photographer. I would think that this was a tool a predator would use to to ingratiate themselves to a child you know in the same the old you know the old saw about the van come to the van for free candy right like that kind of thing and and this is a photograph of a young girl who's just like her and if they're pulling some scam like alice is talking about this is your sister or 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 it's a pen pal we talked about pen pals on the um on the on the show that she's she receives this photo with a pen pal letter and wants to go meet her friend at 4.30 in the morning, that kind of thing. I think Alice's theory, the reason it's so powerful, is it's one of the few that feels plausible. It feels like a young girl might actually do what Aisha did if that were what was going on. Yeah, I agree, because the secrecy with her family and and you know something so important to go out in the storm like that. Um, now, when when we're using the word groomed, I guess, we, what are we talking about exactly? Groomed, how, uh, yeah, we, what are we talking about? Well, I mean, I think, you know, these days you would do it online, right? You would catfish somebody or something. I think, just think of the Amy Mahalovic case. We use the Amy Mahalovic case as an example. Um, and in that case, Amy Mahalovic was receiving phone calls from someone who claimed that they knew her mother and if I get any of the if I get any of the details wrong, you can correct me on this. We haven't done this case yet. She's getting phone calls. I think it was that her mother was going to get a promotion, and he was going to pick her up, and they would go buy her a present for her mother. And so Amy Mahalovic meets him after school at a Dairy Queen, and he picks her up and he murders her. And I think it's the same type of thing. If someone is reaching out to her and grooming her in this way then then that's what they would be that's what they would be doing they would be using the photograph or whatever to to set up a scenario in which she wants to come meet them and i want to clarify something cuz that's a really good question i think when people nowadays hear the word 
groom, they think it has to be sexual in nature. You hear about, um, you know, creeps online grooming young girls to then meet them for sex. Um, That is a type of grooming. But grooming can also just be gaining the trust of someone with a false story. So pretending to be that young girl and wanting to be a friend. It doesn't have to be sexual in nature. Grooming is just earning their trust so that they will do something that can put them in a vulnerable position and that they can then be taken advantage of. I personally think if the picture had anything to do with it, I think she thought she was talking to the girl. And that may have only been by by letter writing, not not necessarily with a phone call. And if she were talking to someone on the phone, I think it would have been another little girl. I don't think she was talking to a grown man or she thought she was talking to a little girl. And I say that because, again, I don't um, – there doesn't seem to be any indication that she thought she was going to meet an older man for for anything. I really do think she thought she was talking to this little girl. Um, now, how they did that, I'm not sure. Um, I don't necessarily think she was talking to another person face-to-face. Maybe someone was delivering a message. But if it were so close to her in her inner circle, within her family or within her basketball team, I think someone would have overseen and said something at this point because she is nine. She didn't go many places by herself. She went to church with her family. She went to basketball games with her family, her brother, her brother's basketball team, her basketball team. She goes to school. There are other kids around, other teachers around. It's just hard to imagine when a nine-year-old can be alone to get these sorts of messages without anyone else knowing. So you're right. Maybe somebody knows and just hasn't said anything. I think generally speaking... This this kind of crime, like any kind of crime, typically is committed by someone you know. I do think that's true. I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I'm I'm pretty sure they would back me up on that. Um, but like Alice said, the the police appear to have been very good in this case. There's not a whole lot. There's less information on this case than a lot of cases, and I'm hoping people will really dig into this and uncover some stuff uh, about this case. But it seems like the police are good. They responded quickly. They responded with. A lot of a lot of resources. When the backpack was found, they committed a very large search in the area where the backpack was found to see if there was anything else. So I do think the police probably did their due diligence and and looked into all of the people in Asia's immediate circle. We know the parents took polygraphs, for instance. Uh, in fact, we know the parents asked to take polygraphs, sort of the opposite of what we see a lot of times. Whatever faith you put in that, they did take them. They did pass them. The truckers who saw Asia also took polygraphs to determine whether or not they might have had something to do with it. They passed their polygraphs. So it does seem like the police are doing the things that you would hope they would do. And what is the um, story about the the description of the car that she might have gotten into? Um, like a 70s, like a green 70s, uh, what was it, like a Lincoln or something? Like a Continental? I, I find this this to be strange, and I'm not... 100% sure how much stock to put into it. This tip, I believe, was released by the FBI in 2016, um, if I'm right about that. And basically, someone came forward and said that they had seen a girl matching Aisha's description getting into a vehicle they described as an early 1970s Lincoln Mark IV or Ford Thunderbird dark green with rust on the wheel wells. So this is a very specific kind of car. Very specific. And, you know, we don't know if this person's tip came out back in 2000 
or if it came out in 2016. Both would be weird. It would be weird for the police not to release this information, this tip in 2000, because 16 years passing by for a 1970s car, that car's probably not on the road anymore. It's much easier to catch a car of that that description close in time. And then if the person only came forward in 2016, imagine this. You don't know anything about Asia. You don't know anything's weird. But you look out your window, and it's storming, and it's 4.30 in the morning, and you see a little girl soaking wet get into a car without any other adults around, into a dark green car, clearly driven by someone who's older than nine, and you don't say anything about it? That is a weird scenario, period. For that person not to say anything is weird. Not only do you not say anything about it, but you cataloged the details so <laughs> so finely, and you still didn't say anything about it. Right. So I, I don't know what to think about that fact. It seems um, unlikely that someone would all of a sudden 2016 be like, huh, maybe I should report this. That was a weird thing that happened 16 years ago. I just heard a podcast about this Asia Degree girl. Maybe this had something to do with it. I don't think so. I think any, just about any one of us right here, if we saw, if we looked at our windows tonight and saw that, we would probably tell someone. If you live in North Carolina and you, and you recognize that car, do call it in. But I, I, I find this one hard to believe. Or do you think that maybe it was somebody playing a game? Maybe it was somebody who actually was responsible for something and just wanted to just wanted to reach out to get the uh, sense of where the investigation was going. That's risky. People, you know, we've talked about this before. Um, uh, murderers really like to reinsert themselves into the case. They like to show up to the crime scene, be part of the search party if someone goes missing. Um, they like to call in a tip line because they get a thrill out of it. Now, maybe they think that no one was paying attention to the case and they wanted to mix it up and call in a tip at 2016. If they called the tip in in 2016, you better believe you that um, you're going to be investigated, <laughs> right? Uh, the, the cops are going to look into that because they want to see how trustworthy you are and they want to know how you would know this information, why you didn't report it before then. So that definitely draws attention to you. Maybe that's what you want, though. Right. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, nothing from this case left the state of North Carolina. I know the age of Asia, um, you know, suggests uh, this is a kidnapping perhaps, but why is the FBI uh, running this? Well, number one, the FBI can, can be involved in any case. Uh, if local authorities reach out to the FBI and need their assistance, they can provide their assistance. I believe, and Alice may be able to confirm this, that all kidnappings of children are under the FBI's jurisdiction anyway. So, so I believe they could get involved in this no matter what. And you can see that in the Delphi case. Um, the, the girls were murdered in Delphi, no indication that they crossed state lines. Uh, but the FBI was involved in that case too. So any jurisdiction can actually reach out to the FBI for assistance. The FBI doesn't always take it on because of limited resources, but um, they do have more resources in profiling in um, – you know, search capabilities, access to, um, you know, different types of uh, drones and, uh, you know, physical sorts of um, uh, investigative materials. So they can be brought in. And especially when it involves a young, young child, um, there's always the thought that the FBI can help. Yeah. And most likely what you would have here is a task force that involves FBI and local 
officials working together to try and determine exactly what's going on. The Cleveland County Sheriff's Office, I think, is lead in this case, but the FBI has been very involved. I just looked up the uh, pictures of um, 1970s Fort Thunderbird and 1970s Lincoln Continental, and I can guarantee you if any of those, if, if a car like that was like just common in a neighborhood, that's the creepy person. <laughs> like no one who drives that car isn't creepy. And, you know, think about this. The person even was close enough to see rust on the wheel well. Like, that's really close in a storm at 4.30 in the morning when it's dark. That's, I don't, I mean, everything about that tip uh, sends off alarm bells in my mind. I don't know about you, but you have to be kind of close to see rust on the wheel well in the dark at 4.30 in the morning. One indication that it's a recent tip is the authorities went back and searched vehicle registries to try and find this car and couldn't locate it. So that indicates that whoever this is is telling the story 15 years later. It's weird. Yeah, it's very weird. And uh, Doug here, the uh, the geo-profiler, asks, was the bag found her day-to-day school backpack? We think so. I, I can't say for certain on that. The, it was the backpack. It had her name on it. Pretty sure it is her, her school backpack. I don't think it's like a piece of luggage or anything. It's always described as her backpack. And just as like a tip for any of you out there with kids, don't put your kid's name on their backpacks. This is actually a very common tool for pedophiles and um, perpetrators to look at someone's kid's backpack. Pottery Barn does this. You can get your child's name engraved on just about anything. They'll be like, Amanda, as they're getting off a bus. Um, and the child thinks, well, you know my name. You must know me. Yeah, your mom sent me to get you. Right, exactly. Um, Amanda, your brother told me to give you this. So don't monogram and don't put your kids' names on backpacks, bags, water bottles. Um, I don't know why people do that. Yeah, that's risky. I remember growing up hearing, you know, like it it was ingrained in my head. Like if you don't know the person who says they, they're your friend or a family friend, just run, you know, unless they had. And then we had a password. You know, I guess that stuff is still uh, useful today. We always talk about holdback evidence on our our podcast and holdback evidence. It irritates a lot of people. They don't understand why the police don't release more evidence. We often don't understand why the police don't release more evidence. But one of the reasons you do it is so that you can rule out fake tips in the um, spring, I believe, or maybe even later of 2020. There was an inmate in a local prison who claimed that he knew what had happened to Asia Degree. We talked about this on our podcast, and literally, I think the day, either the day after or the day before our first episode dropped, there was an update from that 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 was a false tip and unfortunately is not helpful. Yeah, is that something uh, that you both see a lot from personal experience? Um, people who kind of give false tips, maybe try to get a day out of the outside, you know? It's not uncommon. It's not uncommon. I think a lot of people like to... Um, uh, just in general in life, people like to uh, appear that they know more about something than they actually do. And so when you actually drill down with uh, questions with any level of specificity, a lot of people's stories fall apart. I didn't I, I didn't know say that I knew where Asia was. I overheard in the bathroom that someone talked about a girl getting murdered. That's typically what we see. I, I don't think it's necessarily ill will or they're trying to lie. I think a lot of people just like to feel like they know something and they're helping. And sometimes the police screw up and actually give the people information and they're able to use that. 
the most famous case of this is the Henry Lee Lucas case. So Henry Lee Lucas confessed to lots of murders that he did not commit. And the way he was able to do that is essentially the police. He would manipulate the police into giving him information, which he would then give back to them. And that resulted in him you know, getting to travel around the country and, and go to fast food restaurants and get the Texas Rangers to buy him all sorts of hamburgers. There's a great documentary about this, um, I believe, on Netflix. So it does happen, and it's an interesting phenomenon. As prosecutors, if, if you're walking into a scenario where you've heard there's a tip given by a jailhouse informant, like how, I guess it probably depends a lot on the specifics already as you're walking into that, but are you feeling confident? Is it like a similar thing each time? Or uh, like, is it just kind of like, uh, throw your hands up, hey, whatever, this could be something, it's probably nothing. I think Michelle has the good answer in the chat box. She says it's a tedious process corroborating a tip or confession. Um, th- there's usually a lot of work done on the front end first. Um, someone says that they were at, in this city or in this jail at this time. Look up the records. Nope, can't be. May not waste your time on that. So it totally depends. And sometimes you do get that eureka moment. That doesn't not happen, you know. So I think that's why the investigative process is so long. Um, and it, while the public sometimes may think, gosh, why can't you solve this right now? This, there seem to be so many resources. It, it is a, a very step-by-step process and a lot goes on behind the scenes. Um, and typically, especially like a case like Delphi, I know they get tens of thousands of tips. My understanding is because they have a big task force. They go through every single tip that comes in, even if it's a, a cursory check and they know it's going to be an off-the-wall tip. It's not going to lead anywhere. They still do something to rule it out. Um, so it's, it, it's, a, it's a long process. And if you've listened to Maggie Freeling's Unjust and Unsolved, you know there's a lot of innocent people in jail because of jailhouse informants. So you have to be really, really careful. I mean, there's a lot of guilty, very guilty people in jail because of jailhouse informants too but it's it's not uncommon to see that in a bad prosecution you know just a famous one think about the west memphis three involves a jailhouse informant who claimed that jason baldwin confessed to him that he was involved in murdering the kids and now the guy's like i was out of my mind and just trying to get the best deal i could and just made it up so it's definitely something that that good prosecutors take seriously but are very skeptical about what was the search like after? Did what, the community uh, come together and, and did they do um, independent searches outside from law enforcement? You know, that's a good question. I don't actually know about the community involvement. I'm, I would be surprised if it wasn't significant. There was a pretty massive uh, police search and dogs were called in. Um, they were following Aisha's track. You know, the the stuff that was found in the shed was actually found by local people, the people who own the shed. And they had called the police and got the police in to look at that. Don't know about community involvement, but I know that when the backpack was found, buried 26 miles away, there were people in the community who wanted to be involved. But that area was so dangerous and and swampy and everything else that they actually could only use professional searchers uh, to look for that. So there is a not insignificant chance that Asia is near where that backpack is. It wouldn't surprise me. It's just a very difficult area to search. That's a really good example of um, keeping a story alive. So the the man who found the back bag, um, the backpack in the double bagged um, trash bags, 
he didn't think anything of it. He was probably going to throw it away. And it was actually his wife, I believe, who saw it, saw the name and said, this girl, this girl went missing a couple years ago. And then he called the cops. So if she didn't say that, he may have tossed it. I find trash all the, you know, all the time, especially when I'm clearing out like, um, a a yard or something, I'm not going to take the time and see what it is. I just assume it's trash if it's in a trash bag. So that's a great example of why you keep a case alive and you get a name out there. Um, she heard the name on the news and she remembered it. So when she saw the name on the backpack, I guess in this instance, it was good. The name was on the backpack. Um, she knew to say something. Right. Right. Do you think that there's any significance to it being 26 miles away? At all? Have you? Is there something significant in that area, or is there something significant about that distance? It's relatively close. It's not in another state. I think that's significant. Somewhat local. Oh, okay. Well, oh, that's an interesting. Um, where it was found from where her house is, could you have traveled twenty six or so miles in any direction and gone out of state? I don't think so. Just thinking about what what it looks like in my mind, I don't think so. But the person who buried it, that probably suggests they didn't obviously expect it to be found, I would say. Maybe. The double bagging is weird. Why why do that? Um, Now, what's significant about that place is I think at one time it was a watering hole, like a swimming hole. It's very, very marshy. Like they wouldn't, like Brett said, they wouldn't let... um, regular lay people search that area because it was so dangerous. They had to use professionals. And even the professionals said that the likelihood of finding anything in that marshy area was uh, very low, something like 20%. So that tends to suggest that you leave things there that you don't want to be found, whether that be Asia or the backpack. I don't know if there are other areas around there that are so difficult to search, but that certainly is a difficult to search area. And Uncovered may be able to help me out on this, but I believe it is 26 miles in the opposite direction off the same highway. So she's going south on this highway. I believe it's Highway 18 in Shelby, North Carolina. Something happens. The backpack is then found 26 miles north on that same highway about 300 feet off of the road where this guy is is clearing some land for for some sort of driveway or some sort of construction there are people who speculate that the bag was buried there intentionally so it would be found by this person i find that hard to believe it is weird to bury the bag all you had to do was take it to a dumpster throw it in the dumpster it never would have been found um it's weird to double bag it it appears this person was trying to preserve this backpack for some reason, but hard to say why without more information. And it, it sounded like from your episodes that there was some other items in the backpack that weren't necessarily Asia's. The police actually re- released this later, but one of them is that New Kids on the Block t-shirt or sleeping gown or whatever it is. The other is a book, uh, McGillicott's Pond? Pool? which is a Dr. Seuss book, which was not Aisha's, but apparently came from the library where Aisha went to school. So that's a weird one. But those are the two things that the police have told us were in the backpack that did not belong to her. And the police said, strangely, when they found the backpack, that 90 to 99% of the items in the backpack belonged to Aisha. That's a weird thing to say. And what is 1 to 10% yeah. not Aisha's? The book... Um, 
you know, we gave a short summary. I, I haven't read it myself, but it's a typical Dr. Seuss book, kind of lyrical, silly, made up words. But it's about someone who's trying to fish in like a trash filled pond and everyone's laughing at him that he's not going to be able to find, you know, fish for anything or catch anything in that pond. And he's like, I will try harder. Maybe if you tried hard, you could try to draw some parallel between that and what Asia was going through. But it really just seems like a kid's book. Yeah. I, I mean, if this was uh, the Maura Murray case, we'd fill up a few hours with that alone. And and honestly, I'm hoping that's what people right. do. I hope yeah, people take real. this case yeah. and they spend a, a lot of time on it. Alice and I have said this on our show before. You know, we, we wish we could do more investigation. We wish we could do that part of true crime, we really just can't do that. We don't have the time or the resources at this point in our lives and career and everything else, but there are people out there who can, and that's why we wanted to do this, is just to bring attention to it. I don't think we added really anything new necessarily to this case. We just wanted people to hear it in the hopes that they can they can take it the next step. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers, but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.